0: The year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This episode is on Dig Richards and the RJs. When rock and roll was first born in this country, Dig Richards and the RJs were one of the biggest bands in the land. In the late 1950s, alongside Johnny O'Keefe and Cole Joy, Dig Richards and the RJs were top of the tree in terms of popularity, musicianship and when it came to lead singer Dig Richards, pure sex appeal. Dig was Australia's very first teen idol a dreamboat with rock credibility. He was often compared to the original rebel without a cause, James Dean. However, Dig and the RJs, they did have a cause, and the cause was to spread the word of rock and roll across the great southern land. I've got to admit I didn't know a great deal about Dig Richards and the RJs before starting the research on this episode. Obviously, I knew Dig was a pioneer of Australian rock and roll, and his image was always there of the six o'clock rock and bandstand days, but when it came to his music, I didn't really know a great deal but I couldn't believe what a diverse career he'd had that stretched hits over three decades. That wasn't up until his untimely death in 1983, aged just 42. There are very few musicians who were able to change with the times as successfully as Dig. Later going by his full name, Digby Richards, he had chart success over three decades and his full catalogue is extraordinary. My aim with these episodes is to do justice to Dig's musical legacy. I was lucky enough to sit down with Dig's mate and RJ's drummer, Leon Isaacson, and we had a great chat about Dig. I also spoke with Dig's younger brother, Doug. However, the sound quality of Doug isn't that great, but I really enjoyed speaking with Doug, and he was a fountain of knowledge. Talking about a fountain of knowledge and knowledgeable people, Leon Isaacson, wow, this guy's a living musical treasure. Incredibly, Leon started writing a diary in 1955 and has documented every day since. Along with fellow R.J. John Hayton, Leon authored a book, Behind the Rock, and its follow-up, Behind the Rock and Beyond. By his own admission, he's never been a star, just a band member. Well, he says just a band member, but he has seen and done things that is the stuff of pure rock and roll dreams. My chat with Leon stretches over four episodes, and while they're connected by Leon's story or drumming, they are standalone episodes. The first is on Dig Richards and the R.J.'s. The second is on Digby Richards' solo career. The third is on the RJs, who then formed into the Rajas. And the fourth episode is on Leon's rockabilly band in the 1980s, The Mighty Guys. Okay, that's it for the intro. It's time for some music. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of Dig Richards and the RJs.
1: So to me, Baby, I'm a living, loving wreck Wow, can't you tell by the way I walk Can't you hear it in my talk? Baby, I'm a living, loving wreck I have found my little piece of peace mine Surely heaven couldn't be this fine You dry my tears My fears all fly away me like you had the bus fare.
0: Today I'm talking with Leon Isaacson, drummer of Dig Richards and the RJs, the Rajas, and also the Mighty Guys, and also author Behind the Rock.
2: Well, that's exactly it. I mean, I was the only one who was silly enough to keep a diary in those days, and when John and I wrote the book, all we had to do was go through the diary and go, look at this, you know, and uh, it all comes back straight back to you.
0: Beautiful. Well, we're all glad you did, mate, because it's it's uh, a time capsule of the Australian rock and roll, the, the pioneer start of Australian rock and roll, and look where we are today. You know, Australians are, are doing massive things in the world of music, and it started with you guys, so again, thank you very much for putting it on paper for us so we could all all get into it.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, they were pretty early days, and uh, it wasn't all that sophisticated, you know. and We didn't know how long it was going to last sometimes. it was. We probably thought, well, if this lasts for another six months, it'll be terrific.
0: (laughs) So having spent your entire adult life as a rock and roll musician, how did you find rock and roll? When was the first moment that you heard the music?
2: I think one of the first uh, stadium shows I went to to see Bill Haley live and that just blew my socks off and – and Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys, you know, some people wouldn't have heard of, but they were just fantastic, you know, and the whole thing just fell into place. I mean, I was already playing, but I'm going, wow, this this is fantastic. And then the next one I saw was uh, Little Richard Live, and it was all over. Yeah, once I saw that band, I couldn't believe it.
0: And that was again on the Lee Gordon Big Show at the Sydney Stadium? Yeah, yeah.
2: That was just amazing.
0: So, to get these caliber of musicians standing you know, 20, 30 foot in front of you, how did that feel to see people that you'd heard on record, Little Richard, Bill Haley? Must have been, as you said, just mind blowing.
2: Oh, well, it was, you know, because we knew all, we had all the records and, and we were hanging off every one of them. And Little Richard, especially, we'd never seen an, an electric bass, you know. And when he started coming out playing Lucille, you
0: know, and <laughs> as you said, you were, you were hooked for life. Yeah, so, for life. <laughs> so at the time when you first got into drumming, there wouldn't have been rock and roll, was there? You would have been started as a jazz drummer?
2: Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, the first time, I mean, I was playing when I was about 13 maybe, you know, I had, had drums. And I actually went to the stadium and saw Buddy Rich, who was my idol, you know, and uh, and I actually... Was introduced to him. I'm about thirteen or what? Because yeah, my my big brother or cousin introduced me, and I got his autograph. And I, I thought, oh yeah. So I. Um,
0: so you've met Buddy Rich. If anyone doesn't know, was a, an, an American bought brought to Australia. Yeah, he was a, a drummer who was. I suppose, a lead, a lead drummer. He led the band as the drummer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't he, happen the, very much these days.
2: No, he was an absolute freak and he still is, you know. For, uh, he just did things that were seemingly impossible and I tried to do the same thing. <laughs>
0: As a young drummer getting introduced to an idol like this, because uh, apparently before the the big shows kicked on or they started, people didn't believe that these these sort of artists. They thought the, they thought Johnny Ray, the first big show, was a fake because no one expected these sorts of American stars to come to a little little island down in the South Pacific called Australia. But they did. I and know
2: it was look. It was so exciting for for me as a kid. I I had this brother, as I said, like a who was my cousin. And he actually introduced me to Louis Armstrong and his band. Wow. You know, in the in the dressing room. And they made a big fuss of me because I was only about 12 or 13 or something like that, you know.
0: And how's this, you're meeting Louis Armstrong. Were you just gobsmacked?
2: Yeah, no, I, well, actually I was disappointed that the uh, Barrett Deems, uh, the, the drummer wasn't there, but everybody else was there. And then Louis was up the end. And he sort of poked his head and went, "Hey, pops," you know. And I went, "Oh, cool!" And they, and they made a big fuss out of me. And you know, to see these guys in person was just a mind blowing. So,
0: your cousin was he obviously connect? How did he w- get backstage? Well,
2: yeah, well, he was uh, he was going with Dawn Lake. I don't know if you remember Dawn Lake, but anyway, he was also a bit of a car salesman and all that stuff, and nightclubs, and he played piano and all that okay. stuff. And somehow he. He knew all these guys, and I didn't believe him at the time, you know, because he said, oh, yeah, you've got to come up here. I, I actually know Buddy Rich, and I'm going, come on, Ray, you know. How could you know Buddy Rich? And they, he, I, I walk up with him, and Buddy says, hey, Ray. You know, <laughs> and I'm going, no, he does know him. Yeah, so, uh, so I was pretty privileged as a kid. I was brought up in a bit of a musical household where my, my uh, sister was married to a bass player. Bands used to come around to my place, and and uh, sort of radio stars like Jack Davy and right, all those wow. sort of people yep. used to come to my place. So, so I was brought up with music just going on all the time, you know. And uh, so it was so easy for me to fall into rock and roll when, uh, you know, in, in about fifty. 56, I suppose, 57.
0: And so when was the first, do you remember the actual first record that you heard or the first, if you heard it on the radio or a song that sort of went, wow, what's this? This is this is different to Frank Sinatra or what we've been hearing lately or how, how did that actual rock and roll hit you?
2: Well, well, you know, sort of during the, the early 50s, you know, you were sort of subjected to all these um, songs like, Chick singers singing "Come Down from Your Ivory Tower" and always uh, pretty you know, straight-ahead things. And so when when you sort of first all heard all the Bill Haley things, you it just just blew you away because it was just so different, you know. And we wondered how long that'd last, and then it just kept coming, you know, with Little Richard and then Elvis and then uh, all that sort of people. And to think that you could actually see them live, that they'd come to Australia, as you said, you know, the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just fabulous.
0: So did you see the Blackboard Jungle?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's where I think where it was all introduced to us, when I saw Blackboard Jungle and then when I saw Rock Around the Clock.
0: That know. was the sequel of a, or it was yeah. another movie?
2: Well yeah. well, yeah, they just used Rock Around the Clock in Blackboard Jungle but uh going to uh, see rock around the clock with them all playing and yeah don't knock the rock and all those other things and uh the girl can't help it and and all those movies you know they just blew us away
0: so you mentioned the the big shows so were they uh, something that you went to quite often to to see these shows yeah I,
2: I i caught as many as i could when i was a kid you know um I think it was just all the atmosphere of the stadium was fabulous, you know. And heading and, down to
0: Rushcutters Bay. It must oh, have been no. a buzz to, to be heading to these shows. And
2: uh, in, in some of those early rock shows, of course, all, all the chicks used to wear all the flared re- like, you know, and they'd have See You Later Alligator written on the back of their shirt okay, or something, yeah, you know. Yeah. it's all, all that stuff. So you, were, you d- just absorbed the whole atmosphere of it.
0: Because there was an energy of the time. That it was the first time that teenagers, especially in Australia, had their own voice and they had their own yeah. music. And and it was it was something obviously that you guys could grab onto as your own.
2: Oh, right. I, and I just wanted to get into it. And, I mean, and we sort of uh, just checked out all the, all the bands that had just started, like Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs, Cold Joy and the Joy Boys, and all that, you know. And
0: uh, so, not knowing that you're going to be playing down the track with people like JOK. How did you, you're standing in the audience watching someone starting at the very beginning and did you think, wow, I want to be up there or did you have a vision or a dream that you could be there? Oh,
2: of course. You know, we, we wanted to do exactly what Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs were doing and uh, I got to talk to, you know, Johnny O'Keefe at a, uh, where was that, the the town hall. He he did a show because he, he did a support act for, uh, who was he the support act for? Uh, was it Little Richard or...
0: Lee Gordon needed a band for um, Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, who were stuck in Hawaii. That's right, that's so, right. Yeah. Well, that was, yeah,
2: that was, that was Little Richard.
0: Is that that yeah, show? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 it was yep. the
2: same show. And, of course, there was O'Keefe doing, you know, like I thought he was the piano player. <laughs> he starts singing and all that stuff. And, of course, he was up against it as well, uh, you know, being Australian. You know, in those early, really early days, all the Australian support acts had come on for the stadium, and they'd sort of go, "Boo!" You know, bring on the main act. Yeah, but uh, but O'Keefe just got away with it, and I thought, "Wow, look, if if we, you know, if he can do it, so can we," you know. And I got to talk to O'Keefe, which was great to talk to uh, to O'Keefe and and his band at uh, at the Town Hall. We went to a dance for there, and also O'Keefe had a uh, a dance at the. Police Boys Club, Leichhardt and all that stuff. So we hung around there, and I was just starting a band, and uh, with with a friend of mine that I'd met, Jimmy Taylor, a piano player who played with Warren Williams in the Squares. It was another band that was there, and we were looking for a, a lead singer, and we went to uh, Johnny O'Keefe's dance at Leichhardt and this guy got up called Ray Hoff, and he sang all these Eddie Cochran songs, and we went yeah, and then all the all the chicks were screaming, and I thought like, yeah. He'll do. You
0: found so. one. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, we got one.
0: And so your band was called Ray Hoff and Offbeats.
2: That's right. Yeah, that was that was my first band.
0: And that was a band that, if you look at the um, you look at the record charts or anything, it wasn't a band that was significant in the, in that sense. But on the live circuit, you guys were, had a really big name for yourselves, and you, you weren't up in the upper echelons with the, the DJs or the Joy Boys, but you were that next level down.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. uh and we uh, we went in a talent quest at Johnny Devlin and and the Devils had at uh Surreyville and we won the and we won the thing, you know, and
0: uh So why did didn't you guys record? We
2: didn't actually get to record properly because while I was in Ray Hoff and the Offbeats, we did a support act for Dig Richards and the RJs out at Parramatta and a few weeks after that the bass player Peter Baker rang me up and said do you want to join Dig Richards and the RJs? I went, Oh, okay. Uh, I, I look, I don't know. I wasn't too sure because I said, Oh, well, look, you know, Ray off and the offbeats are going pretty well. And he said, Yeah, well, look, just do a week with us because, you know, and if you like it. So the first thing I did was teen time and they had all these shows, they had dances every night.
0: So, I don't want to jump in because that's just a question or two away. Yeah, but w- when you're with the offbeats, you even back people like Frank Ifield, who went on to have you know the, the first Australian number one hit in the UK and the USA. So, it was just amazing how everyone was just learning at this same time and growing as musicians. Yeah. And yeah, so tell us about people like Frank Ifield and Johnny Devlin.
2: Well, well what happened? Uh, that was another Town Hall concert. And it was Johnny Devlin and the Devils, and because we'd won this, uh, you know, the talent contest, we were the support act as well. And being the support act, we had to back whoever was uh, as well. And, and one of the guys was Frank J That was just before he uh, he went to over to England. And I, I remember Devo and uh, was a bit taken aback when all the chicks were pulling Ray off off the stage and okay. <laughs> going berserk, you know.
0: Because this was a time when fans just, it was a frenzy, wasn't it? They just yeah, pulling, it really was. Pulling people off stages and just ripping their clothes off them.
2: Those early days, especially then when I, you know, started playing with Dig, I mean, there there were only five bands and, you know, as I said, Johnny O'Keefe, Cold Joy, Johnny Devlin, Johnny Reb and the Rebels, another good band, and Dig Richards and the RJs. And they were called the Big Five. And if you're in the Big Five, well, it, the game was on, you know. It, it, it was... Uh,
0: and so you get a phone call to, to join one of these bands in the yeah, Big Five. Yeah, yeah. I'm going
2: yep. to join one of the Big Five and I went, wow. And at the time, I, I remember when I, when I joined the band, I mean, I, I had, a, had a day job as well. I was working at APRA and I was getting eight pounds, <laughs> seven and sixpence or something a week. And the first week I worked with Dio, I got 127 pounds, 10. It was like unbelievable. So I said, yeah, bugger this, I'm going to be a rock star.
0: Dick Richards and the RJs were already an established act The band was the third Australian act signed to Festival Records After J.O.K. and Cold Joy And in 1959 they had released their first single I Want to Love You I Want to Love You
1: Let me say I might love you each night and day. I wanna kiss you each night. Don't let me say I might kiss you each night and day. Don't. You make me cry, don't leave me, don't lie, don't make me say goodbye, I want to love you each time, let me say goodbye,
0: love you each time. This was written by Dig's 15-year-old brother, Doug, and it reaches number eight on the charts. So, would you listen to this song or you... You'd oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I already knew that that song and I joined them very soon after that.
0: So, the band is the first Australian to release a full-length 12-inch album and the cover of this album features Dig in his famous lightning bolt jumper. Often compared to James Dean in looks, Dig was the complete rock star of his time, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, he sure was. Uh, and it was a great band. That was where I met Johnny Hayton, guitar player, Peter Baker, the bass player. And uh, just being in in the top band just meant that you, like they had a TV show twice a week. That was teen time? Yeah, teen time. And then we'd we'd do other shows like Bandstand as well and and occasional spots on Six O'Clock Rock. Also... We had a dance every night. If we didn't have a big show where we had to fly to Melbourne or something and do a show down there, we, we still had a dance every night. So I was working seven nights a week. I, don't <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that anymore, seven nights a week. My
0: God. But at this time, it's this new rock and roll and the energy. Everybody's getting into it. The, yeah. You know, the crowds would have been to sell out crowds. Just, yeah, an amazing time to be a musician.
2: Well, the other thing was that you know we talked about when I was a kid going to the stadium. I mean, I'd never dreamed that I'd be on this, on this, at the stadium. So we did the uh, the Crash Craddock show with, with Dig, and that was just amazing. Here I was, and I thought, well, can't get any better than this. So, that's it. That, that's the the peak of the career, isn't it? You know, we played at the stadium, but we did many more. We did uh, Ricky Nelson uh, at the stadium and a few of that. And then, of course, the stadium went after that.
0: Well, you got to see Lee Gordon at his best. You just mentioned Crash Craddock. And for people who don't know who Crash Craddock was, he was a, a singer in America that had basically a failed career. The, he was dumped from his record company. For some reason, uh, Al Heffernan liked the look of him in, in some music magazine shipped over from America. They got him for next to nothing. Al Heffernan and Lee Gordon turned this guy into the complete rock star. He landed in Australia and crowds were just going crazy and he had no idea that they were going crazy for him. He left America as a nobody, landed in Australia yeah. as the biggest star in the country well it,
2: it, it was the film clip you know the, the film clip of boom boom baby that sold it all and then uh, he even crashed when he got here you know he we're talking in the dressing room and Lee Gordon was there and you know and he said so when am i going he said you going last son you're the you're the star and with Dwayne Eddie, and all these other bods, you know, and they were all going, who the hell's Crash Craddock?
0: <laughs> and was he just bewildered by all this? Yeah, but, I mean, he, they, they just went berserk when he
2: came out. And uh, it's funny, you know, I reminisce like this with Crash because I played with him only just, oh, how long, about 10 years ago or something, we, we, we did a little tour and everything, you know, so we were, we were just laughing about those early days. And uh, And there I was playing with him again when I was with Lonnie Lee and the Lee
0: And another side note to that is then Crash Craddock went back to America. No one wanted to know him still over there, but he forged on and he forged on, ended up becoming one of the biggest country stars in America yeah, of his that's time. Right, he went country, Half a yeah. dozen number one hits. One of the songs is uh, Rub It In, and then that was used for um, Glade's song Plug It In, Plug It In. So he just, he's had an amazing career, and it came from. Alan Heffernan picking up the music making magazine and yeah. seeing him and thinking, well, this guy looked all right. <laughs> so it's just incredible. And it's incredible that you were there watching all this take place.
2: And he, like, he's still great. Like he still sings great. He looks great, you know, when he's getting on now. But wow, he he, he just killed him on that tour that we were on.
0: Because in America, he'd been picked up by a, a Big label over there. I think it was RCA or somebody like that, yeah. and they pumped a lot of money into him, and he just didn't hit. They tried to push him. Everyone was looking for the new Elvis over there, so they tried to pump him in as the new Elvis, and it didn't work. He yeah. came, you know, picked up by Lee Gordon and the big shows, and just became a massive star. And as I said, it's just fantastic, to even to to know that you were there, you were watching all this yeah. take place.
2: And what a what a great guy he is. He's he's something special. He really is. You know, I mean he was pretty taken aback when he came to australia and found out he was the biggest star ever <laughs> cuz then
0: on his next tour the same thing he um he headlined the tour like a probably six months later Lee Gordon made that much he brought him back yeah and he headlined the tour they had the Everly Brothers and the Everly Brothers the same thing again who the hell is this guy like we're the Everly Brothers and this who's Crash Craddock
2: I know I mean I mean sometimes uh that that did happen you know that people were bigger here in Australia and we thought that they were going great guns and actually in America they'd sort of died out you know or, or their career had gone down a bit but to us they were still right up there you know and i think the same thing when they went to england that they were still right up there when their careers were sort of diminishing a bit in the states
0: amazing time amazing time so i mentioned before uh dig's brother doug Doug. 15 year old guy he writes another song for the band and he writes on through it's released as a second single and it also cracks the top 40 Doug would have to be one of the youngest hit-creating songwriters in the history of Australian music. Did he write for any other bands, or did he write any other hits? No, no, well,
2: it, it was just like Dig's little brother, like, and he was always just hanging around, you know, the the band and everything. And uh, he sort of seemed like he was too young to join the band, you know, at the time. Cause, uh, so he
0: obviously played an instrument?
2: Yeah, yeah, he played a bit of guitar and was always hanging around. And uh, and if he did want to play in the band, John John wouldn't have let him. <laughs> John, no, we've already got one guitarist.
0: <laughs> you got to protect your turf.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Here's Doug Richards' take on how he wrote those early hits.
3: Um, I don't know. Um, because. Digby was sort of doing music at that time, and I was also a musician, even unpublished and unworking anywhere. I worked in schools mostly, you know, as the kid, the weird kid that used to play guitar and sing. So I decided to write a song. I'm trying to remember. I know it was in 1959, but I can't remember when. Late late 59, I think. Yeah. See, I'd already written another song for, me, for Digby uh, called I'm Through. I'm through with you, I'm through with you. And I can't remember that thing, it's not worth remembering.
1: <laughs> when I take you on a date, you're always running hours late. When I'm way down deep in blue, every little thing you ever do just makes me feel. Bluer than blue i through with you, I'm through with you I feel a lot better when I'm far away from you I'm cause I'm through with you I ain't missing you, I ain't kissing you And I feel a lot better when I'm far away from you I'm cause I'm through with you Well you went away and left me
0: Another claim for Dick Richards and the RJs was the band was the first group to perform live on the iconic TV show Bandstand. That was incredible. They, you weren't in the band at that time, but you no. actually watched the show.
2: Yeah, we we watched the show when we were rehearsing away with Ray Off in the offbeats, and we said, "Look, even these guys can get on television." And uh, and and Barry Lewis, the the drummer, had even had a had a big sign in front of his bass drum saying, "For bookings, please ring this number." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know that that gave us more encouragement to keep going with Ray Hoff and the Offbeats. And I like I I didn't think at the time I was going to be joining Dig Richards and the RJs, but when I did, I, it was just fabulous because they were all really nice guys and well-educated guys. Like before that, I'd been playing with a lot of. Desperates and Deros, and you know <laughs>
0: <Yep>. <laughs> anyone who'd take you.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and funnily enough, when I when I joined, Dig uh, Lonnie Lee was filling in for him while he was in hospital, you know, and uh, and so I got to play later on in Lonnie Lee and the Lee Man, and Dig Richards and the RJs.
0: So you, you're ticking yeah, off the big five as you went. Yeah,
2: I know. But I, uh, so I had I had to, like I was moonlighting with, with Lonnie and then a big tour of to Western Australia come up with Dig and I had to find another drummer for Lonnie.
0: You mentioned there that uh, Dig was not, not singing at the moment. He was injured and filled in by uh, Lonnie Lee. That was when Dig had the uh, serious car accident on the Harbour Bridge. Yeah, that's right. He must have been really banged up. He had a broken hip, broken shoulder, and he received over 40 stitches in his face. It sounds like he was lucky to survive.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, I didn't know Dig. I had never met Dig when, when that actually happened, you know. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I know. I only got the story from uh, the other guys and... And poor old Boogie, Joe Boogie, the piano player, he also got a big broken jaw and wow. everything. So, so what actually it? happened? I don't know. They were, apparently they were they ran in the back of a truck or something. I,
0: yeah, I'm I'm not too sure. But this is Doug Richards speaking about the accident that happened to Dig.
3: Digby was just about to uh, was about to about to do a um, stadium show with uh, Fabian, I think it was. Oh yeah, I think it was Fabian. Um, I mean I'm stretching my memory I haven't got Leon's book to go by but I think it was Fabian and, um, and he managed to run up the back of a truck because the lighting, the lighting on the Sydney Harbour Bridge was not that flash in those days and um, this truck had decided to stop in the lane and of course if you're converse- having a conversation with people and turning head you don't even notice that the thing hasn't moved in front of you and you just run into it, you know, and that's what he did. He ran up under the truck, and uh, Jay Boogie, Boogie broke his jaw, I think, and uh, Dig's piano player, and Digby uh, had a big cut down the side of his head, which is fine, but he's, um, he's driving a Morris Minor at the time, so there's not a lot of room for movement, uh, and he rammed his femur up through the joint in his, um, in his hip, so that wasn't really thrilling, you know, it wasn't too good. So obviously he didn't get to do that stadium show. He was very lucky to survive, particularly as he was driving, and they didn't have collapsible steering wheels in those days. <laughs> they uh, they tended to go straight through you if you pushed them too hard. If you remember the old days of steering wheels and steering columns, it was like an iron shaft pointing at your chest.
0: But he was out for three months, and and as you said, at that time, all of a sudden, Lonnie Lee was on the scene with a few hits of his own. Yeah. And then you're drumming with Lonnie, who then became your brother-in-law. So.
2: Yeah. Well. Oh. Uh, yeah. I. I had an ulterior motive because I was in love with his sister, Lizzie.
0: So you get yeah. you're getting paid to be the drummer of the band, and you're you're chatting up his sister. That's I know. I know.
2: And I got away with it. So underneath. your first
0: gig with uh, Dig Richards and the RJs was in Melbourne on the uh, station GTV Nine on the Bert Newton show. Dig's still on crutches, jumping around. Your first your first gig is on TV.
2: We went down to uh, was it GTV Nine and funnily enough, it was the Bert Newton show. But Bert was sick or he was off doing something, and Frankie Davidson was filling in for him.
0: Another so, legendary Aussie. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. So he was the compare, and so we we were we were treated like big rock stars in in Melbourne, you know. Except uh, some of the crew on the show. I remember, you know the – or or, the, or the, the the resident band, they'd be looking at us and going, "Who are these guys? Like, from Sydney? How dare they?" You know, <laughs> yep. because the, they were the jazzers as well. You know? So they didn't want all the rock so stars. So two reasons in. they
0: didn't like you: one, you're from Sydney, and then you're also a rock and roller. Yeah,
2: rock and roll band. But I mean, the the chicks just went wild about it. you know, have a dig. And uh, so we used to come back and do a whole lot of stuff in Melbourne. Dig was always pretty big in Melbourne.
0: Your first live performance with Dig Richards and the RJs is at Newcastle Stadium. People of Newcastle are, known, are now known as passionate sporting fans, but this is a night when Dig finally returned to the stage, and the reception that he received was amazing. There was plenty of love for Dig in the room that night.
2: Oh, they sure. Well, I mean, after all the publicity of his, uh, you know, crash on the Harbour Bridge, and as he came out on his crutches, they all just went mad. I mean, I actually felt tears welling up in my own eyes and they were like you know they just went berserk and we, we just stole the show even though Coldjoy joy and the joy boys were the stars of the show that particular night you know dig just oh they went berserk for dig
0: apparently the ovations went on for like you know five or ten minutes before you yeah, guys no. could even get into it
2: and it was funny because peter Baker, the bass player was sort of thinking oh dig's never going to be the same you know <laughs> and he was worried about the show and, so uh, what
0: are you waiting to count the song first? Song oh, yeah. In
2: oh, I mean, I, I couldn't wait, you know. I, I was that young. I mean, I, I, I couldn't wait to get in there, any of it. Uh, even when we did the stadium shows, Peter used to be always nervous and I, I couldn't wait to get in there and play. But I suppose that was the only place where you did get nervous because the the crowd was louder than the band, you know, and you, you'd you run down and, and they'd have police corridors the police would have to cordon off the crowd so he could get off the stage.
0: And it's long gone now, Sydney Stadium, but it was at an old boxing ring and Lee Gordon gets a, a revolving stage in the middle. Yeah. I, luck, I spoke to Lucky Star and he called it the revolting stage. He said, God, it was horrible. It You know, it'd go one way and it sometimes joke back the other way and it felt like you are singing up on, on a boat sort of thing.
2: Well, it was okay when you went on, but when you by the time you'd finished your set, you didn't know how to get off because – you didn't know you would, you know, you were somewhere else. You'd be looking for the stairs, and you just look for the police, and, <laughs> and you, you went with them. And because if the kids got hold of you, what
0: would they have done? Oh, to you? they'd
2: rip your clothes off, you know. And, uh, you know, where the first, you know, times I was playing with Dig, we, I remember we had all these the, these blue coats with gold buttons, and uh, and I got mobbed and they and they took all of them, every button off my coat <laughs> <laughs> oh they nearly strangled me with my tie they got that as well yeah they were funny times
0: And it just—it's a a bygone era, and it's—it's a time that's never going to happen again. But again, you got to experience this as a as a musician, and you're on the revolving stage. So you were sitting down, so you probably didn't have the dramas that the other guys standing up had to worry about. But your worry is getting off the stage. So.
2: Look, look, we're only kids, you know, I suppose, you know, 16 or whatever we were and it was just all happening. And you
0: guys are learning at the same time because Rock and Roll in Australia was brand new and, and the people recording you guys, did you know Favors, you know, people like Festival and Ken Taylor, they, mm. they didn't really know how to record it the the engineer was robert idale and again he was experimenting at the same time with you guys because nobody knew what was going on at least in america they they had had sort of popular music and they were recording all the stars so it was just a bit of a transition for them in australia rock and roll was was just something new and again must have been amazing to be in a studio
2: well it was i mean it was disappointing for me when i found out that i went in there and they said oh no you 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 can't use the bass drum. I'm going, what you can't? That, oh, no, we can't record that. Now it goes boom, boom. And, you know, and all the needles go. I thought, oh, that's awful. And then they'd be, and then I'd be playing away, and they go, oh, no, that's a bit loud. Look, play on this phone book or something, you know. And I'll be going, this is ridiculous. But at the time, you know, I mean, we got to be able to. Uh, uh, fix it up a bit but because we were kids we were just told what to do and it, it wasn't until later on when I was playing with that Keith which was the the difference because he told them what yeah. he wanted he was know. the boss yeah yeah and, and and that was great and i I, I love doing all that but when we were just kids and of course we ended up being the staff recording band the RJs
0: for uh, a festival for yep. a
2: festival so whoever came in the place. We had to back them, you know, and we had to learn songs really quickly. Well, we had to learn songs really quickly at teen time as well. Somebody would come on and say, we're going to do this, and nobody had charts in those days. They might have had a chord chart maybe. but
0: So they'd give you the record and you'd have to learn yeah, the
2: record. and uh, we'd we'd have one listen, we'd play it, we'd have one more listen, we'd play it, that was it. That was it. All, uh, rehearsal over.
0: Live TV, here we yeah, come.
2: Yeah, and. But it was great training because uh, we just were able to learn things so quickly, you know, uh, no mucking around. I mean, it wasn't until years later when I, I couldn't believe how long it took some of these bands to learn these <laughs> to learn some song or whatever, you
0: know. Yeah, yeah, and two years to record an album and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, Festival, they, they did, again, they did you know favours. They gave you songs such as Anne Laurie and You Are My Sunshine, hardly the stuff of rock and roll dreams.
2: No, I know. Well, I mean, Ken Taylor and Robert Iredell, I don't think they really liked rock and roll at all, and they were trying to get us to do other stuff. And of course, Annie Laurie, God, that was one of the first ones I did with Dig. And we, we had to do it because Ken Taylor had written it out and Ken Taylor was going to get the royalties as a composer. So we did the, this ridiculous song, you know, and we followed all the instructions because we did as we were told and we played this ridiculous thing and <laughs> thought, well, once they hear it, they'll realize it's ri- ridiculous. And, <laughs> yeah. they, and then they heard it and they said, yeah, that's great, boys. Oh, just what you wanted. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Maxwell to praise of Bonnie When early falls the dew It was there that Annie Laurie She gave me her promise true Gave me her promise true Which never forgot will be And for Bonnie yeah. Why i lay me down indeed Now you've heard the story Of Bonnie Annie Laurie Here's the final chapter If you'll permit me to adapt her Those Scottish cats They're swinging Why they're swinging In that glen Oh but that Annie Laurie She just can't remember
0: well there was a good return to form Because you guys put out the next single Coming Down With Love I'm coming down
1: I'm coming down I'm coming down Yes I'm coming down I'm coming down, 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 down Coming down with a heartache I ain't sick, but I got a fever. Blood pressure's running high. My pulse ain't bright, I can't sleep at night. You know, here's the reason why. Well, you ain't been around for a week or two. I said I ain't seen a, hide, a hair of you. I'm coming down. 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 Coming down with a heartache. Well, I ain't in the kind of condition a doctor can diagnose Cause when our heart starts to fall apart, you can't hear a steady
3: scope What's around with me? I said, it's a simple fact I don't believe
1: you're ever coming back I'm I'm coming down,
3: I'm coming down,
1: I'm coming down I'm coming down, I'm coming down Coming
3: down with a heartache
0: and it makes the charts at number 18. So you guys are back in form.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there was a few odd things that we did with Dig that weren't too bad, but, I mean, the the material we got given was uh, pretty hopeless stuff. The only time that I enjoyed doing one was Dee Dee Darling, and I don't think it was even a hit.
1: Wish you could stay in my arms, but I know, sweetheart, if you are late getting home, it just wouldn't be smart Did darling, Wish you were mine, only mine Wished it right from the start Wish we were one now and nothing could tear us apart Oh, I wish and wish, diddy darling Wish all the time Darling. Make Diddy my darling. dreams come true Diddy They'll come true, Dee Darling If Diddy you die. wish them true hum-a, hum-a, hum-a. Wish you were wearing my ring Wish you were my bride Dee darling. darling, Wish I could spend every night just a-hugging you tight Dee Darling, Dee Darling You just don't know how I wish oh, 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 oh. Wish I may, wish I might I could
2: steal you away, wish you give me the ride. But that was great because our Keith came in and, and sort of took over and said, This is what we, we want, and told the, the engineers, you know, what they had to do, rather than the engineers telling us what they want to do, you know, and coming in, the engineer would come running in and say, Oh, I think we need skulls on this or something, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, Cole Lofnam. I would spoke to Cole Lofnam before, and he said um, when he was with the Crescents, JOK took the Crescents under the under his wing. Yeah, and it was great to young bands. Being a young musician, it must have been great having someone like JOK saying, "Well, this is how it's done."
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, uh, Keith. Uh, I mean, there, there was a method in his madness with uh, sort of getting all these people because they were they were always ever going to be support artists to him you know and uh and he was still going to be the king no matter what and uh but i mean if it wasn't for john man the, the, you know half the people wouldn't have existed in those days you know and do you think he gets his due i hope so i hope so you know they say he was the the father of rock and roll in australia and why not? If it was, if it hadn't been for Jock, you know, a lot of these people wouldn't have had careers at all, you know. And uh, and he understood rock and roll. I, even when we were recording with him, the difference between between doing it with Dig when we're kids, and doing it as we're told, you know, we'd finish some track and R- Robert Iledale would say, "Oh, John, it sounds a bit noisy," and O'Keefe would say, "Of course it's noisy. It's fucking rock and roll." <laughs>
0: You'd mentioned Teen Time. It was a Channel 7 version of Bandstand or Six O'Clock Rock, but they didn't want to go head-to-head on the weekend. So they played twice, you know, Monday and what was the other night?
2: Monday and a Friday, yeah. And I think then it went for a Tuesday and a Friday. Yeah. But but the whole thing was was live, so anything could happen. You know, things, people knocked. Chords out and bumped in, and, and, and instruments fell off the rostrum, and and uh, I think my bass drum rolled off once <laughs> or down during a <laughs> while well, to take, and you know, but you, you just keep rolling on and, and smiling.
0: So the next single, Dig Riches and the RJs release, is called My Little Lover. Again, it's a hit song for you guys. Number nineteen on the charts.
1: Take my lips,
0: take my love,
1: a little lover. Let your arms wind round me so tight. Take my hand, take my heart, little lover. Let me lead you to the land of love tonight.
0: Did you like that song?
2: Well, it wasn't too bad. It was, you know, they wanted us to have strings, you know, because that was the. The big thing, and, and we weren't too sure about that, but uh, it was Dig went along with it and said, uh, I, In fact, I think it was Bob Rogers or somebody like that and said, Dig, if you haven't got strings on your next record, I'm not going to play it.
0: Right, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. stuff like that.
2: And you go, God, we used to listen to the most incredible Buffheads in those days. Because we didn't know any better.
0: <laughs> and in America, you, you know, the American artists are forging ahead with rock and roll and, and developing as musicians where you guys are being dictated to by people that really didn't have an idea about rock and roll. No, no,
2: and, and hated rock and roll as well, you know, so we, we didn't have much going for us. But, uh, but it's a, so it's amazing that anything did come out any good, you know, from Festival Records. But it was the only game in town. It was the only studio. And, of course, it did get better. And, I mean, in all fairness to Robert Iredale, I mean, he did try and keep the, the, uh, the technology up to date as possible. But we were always going to be a couple of years behind the Americans or the Poms, you know, you know recording techniques. And also, I mean, he was a bit on his own in, in all that sitting behind there at the desk. There was nobody else who knew who <laughs> who knew. Bunker all about the, what mics to use and what to use, and, and Robert had all these things where he could he could slow the tape down if, if the song was in the wrong key. <laughs> he'd slow it down so the singer would go, oh, and he'd get the right note, and then he'd stick it back up again. Okay. <laughs> Stuff like that. He had lead weights that he put on the on the reels that went round to slow the thing down.
0: So he was learning on the run, like you yeah, guys were. Yeah.
2: So he put something down half a tone.
0: We talked about teen time. You guys were the the backing group for the the, the house band for the the, the show, um, and people such as Peter Allen and Jimmy Little, legendary acts of Australian music. You you backed these guys on this show.
2: Oh yeah. Um, well, I think the Allen brothers uh, one of the first. That was the first show I did. We had to back the Allen brothers. We had to back probably Warren Williams. Uh, probably uh, it was around in those days Dale Wayne and trying to trying to come to, come up with names sometimes really really gets me you know Johnny Robson I was trying to think of then yeah he was one of the ones that used to be a regular and Booker Booker Highland. they'll all come flooding into my head sooner <laughs> or later.
0: So the Fame Festival records almost came to abrupt end one night when you dropped a huge lit firecracker down the bell of your saxophone player, Dave Cross, almost blew the joint up.
2: I know, I know. Oh, God, fancy you bringing that up. Well, well, Dave was just new in the band. Uh, they decided they wanted a sax player for all these all, all these horrible old Daisy-type tunes that, that, that we had to play for people, you know. So we had Dave in there. And I had one of those big crackers, and I just showed it to John. I said, what about this? And. Anyway, Dave was playing all these, uh, what is it, the old, Errol Garner or whatever, he's playing all this vibrato saxophone and playing it. And, of course, Ken Taylor and Robert Ida were saying, oh, how wonderful that sounds. Oh, that's beautiful, Dave. isn't <laughs> I? And I put a big big cracker down the bell of his saxophone. <laughs> it went boom, and the, whole, the whole studio filled with bits of red paper and, <laughs> and smoke. And we thought we were going to get the sack. But everyone just started laughing, and even even Ken Taylor, they they, they all started laughing, you know. And, uh, so anyway, we, we, we were we were dismissed and sent to lunch.
0: And what was Dave's <laughs> thoughts on this?
2: Uh, well, Dave was quite of a funny guy, but what made it hard for Dave was that he had, he had the the thing around his neck that you know the the strap that holds the uh, the saxophone, and he was trying to. Push the saxophone away. He was strangling himself. No, he he had a good sense of humour, Dave Cro- uh, Dave Cross. He, uh, he, he he was a Kiwi and uh, he loved the goon shows.
0: Well, speaking of saxophone players, a one-time member of the band was a short-fused Ron Patton. If you had to drop a uh, firecracker down his, I don't think you would have lived to tell the story, would you?
2: Oh, oh Ron would have just gone you know john used to call him purple face his face would have gone purple uh but uh yeah ron ron <laughs> he was a great sax player you know but he was mad as a cut snake and we eventually uh we, we got this gig as the rj's and and they said they didn't need a sax player so i rang up cole joy or or, or carol jago i said look i got the sax player just for you and the, And they were so grateful to get Ron. (laughs) And we were so grateful to get rid of him.
0: Well, one time you guys are over in Perth. You're playing Teen Time. You have just landed in Perth. Didn't even have time for a shower. You're straight on. You're flown the red eye. You're you're straight on stage on live TV. And the exuberant crowd, someone comes out of the exuberant crowd and knocks uh, Ron's music stand over.
2: Yeah, that's right. He had all these flutes and and saxophones all on it. And somebody kicked it over. And Ron's got a big close-up of him playing, playing the solo, playing a sax solo, and he sees this kid knock this kid out. He goes, he stops playing and starts choking. <laughs> the camera had to go to somebody else. You know, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, a bit of live
2: TV. That was pretty good.
0: Well, that'd be a YouTube sensation these days. That'd that go around the world if
2: they had to kept the camera rolling while he was choking all these young kids. <laughs>
0: The RJs are regarded as one of the best bands around. And as you said before, you were the, became this festival backing band for, for anybody or everybody that came through festival. People such as Nolene Batley. And you guys recorded another big hit song, The Barefoot Boy.
2: Yeah, Barefoot Boy. She, that was probably one of the first um, uh, girl number one hits.
1: Barefoot Boy sitting by the roadside barefoot boy when you say hello with eyes that smile and lips that bring forth laughter barefoot boy i love you so barefoot boy i love you love you barefoot boy i love you so buddy do bone bo buddy do
2: and uh, uh, we did a few tracks for for Nolan. Uh, I think the first one was called Starry Eyed, and she was a she was a sweetheart, and she used to be on Teen Time a lot. And anybody else that come along, yeah, we we yeah, we're always backing them.
0: Another another famous person in Australian music, someone that you guys affectionately know as Rob Egg, Rob E G. all
2: oh, right right. Yeah, well, Rob. Uh, when we were, when we were recording for Dig, suddenly Rob came in the uh, in in the studio with his steel guitar and everything and they said, Oh, we want you to put down some tracks for Robbie G. So uh, I think we did You're Cheatin' Heart and uh, something called Seven Foot Two or something. Oh, I don't know, but
0: Well apparently but, this uh, is where you play the uh, phone book. You play on, oh, I think on pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty Pretty Baby.
2: Pretty, pretty baby That's it. I play the bloody phone book. Oh, no.
0: Apparently, for a few years, you were dirty on John Bogey for playing the uh, typewriter because they oh, made you play the yeah. phone book.
2: Oh, I know. Well, well, Catfish had to play the phone book, too. Catfish was Johnny O'Keefe. Catfish, person, yeah. Drummer. Yep. Yeah. And he had to play the phone book. But we eventually got round to get, getting rid of all that paraphernalia and actually got to record the drums a bit better, you know, and actually got bass drums in there and everything. And... uh but the first snare drums are always too bright, and you'd have to put a handkerchief over the snare drum and all that stuff. But it it did get better with microphones and stuff yeah. like yeah, as know, technology the, the, came on. Yeah, yep. that the, the could handle that sort of stuff.
0: So unfortunately, Dig Richards and the RJs were never able to fully capture your live sound. You know, the studio and as we just talked about, festival festival didn't help as a a live performing group you guys were one of the best in australia obviously one of the most popular in australia but also the best a lot of american stars used to look at you guys and go wow you guys knew what you're doing
2: yeah well you know playing live you know that that was our thing and uh, and we knew how to do it in fact we did one thing when we're at festival because it was almost like a day job we were nearly there every day and we said look We'll just put down a couple of tracks that, that we do, you know, rock and roll things, and just as a demo for them. And we put them down, and before we know it, they released it. Like it wasn't yep. even, we, we didn't even refine it or anything like that. And they re- released it as uh, Dig Richards at the Melbourne Town Hall or something. Live.
0: With canned laughter or canned applause. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's yeah. all this applause and we go, oh,
2: no. Well, I mean, they, they could have at least, you know, re-recorded it. But recording time was precious, you know, in those days you had to do, you know, in three hours you had to get so many tracks down and all that sort of stuff because they were, you know, pay- oh, God, how much are they paying us? About s- seven guineas or something for three hours. <laughs> it was just crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it went up to nine guineas. It nine pounds Nine shillings, and most people wouldn't know what the hell that was. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't even know what guineas are. Yeah, O'Keefe used to do that. He used to quote them in guineas, and they all go, "Oh, okay." <laughs> uh, a guinea was one pound one.
0: I oh, so you get a and, little bit extra out of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was that. That was the extra, usually for the agent or the commission. Yeah, yeah. Anyway.
0: One memorable gig that Dig Richards and the RJs did was in Melbourne at the My Music Bowl in front of 15,000 screaming fans. That must have been a sight, sitting on the drum kit, looking out oh, at such yeah, a Yeah, that was,
2: that was a bigger, bigger deal than the stadium, really. That was, uh, the, you know, for, for us, that was one of the biggest shows we ever did. And years later, of course, um, those shows just got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, so it was no big deal. But well, it was a big deal then.
0: Yeah, 15,000 people, as you said, then was yeah. amazing.
2: Yeah, it was a big deal. That was more than they could fit in the stadium, you know, and they're all going berserk and, and, and screaming louder than the band.
0: <laughs> yeah, because so, the equipment <laughs> you guys were playing through was just, compared to now, was was terrible.
2: I know, I know. Although you know, I mean, John had a Fender concert amp, but a lot of our amps were things with valves hanging out of them, you know, and and taking them down to Melbourne in planes and stuff like that. It was pretty dicey.
0: Yeah. Another memorable scene in your book was when you guys were at Tamworth and you, you guys are basically playing a, a gig up in Tamworth, and for two days the main street was closed down with thousands of kids just milling around the main street. That shows you where rock and roll was at at the time.
2: Yeah, look, I, I regularly go to Tamworth um, every year with Lonnie Lee, uh, you know, in um, in January, and I, I told that story to a few of the guys, you know, and they sort of... T- really believe you you know you think yeah we were up in this hotel and we were waving like the queen you know (laughs) uh, to all the people in the street and they just clogged the street because they'd never seen a live band ever
0: incredible
2: this was in 1959 we went up there we took jimmy little warren williams and barry stanton they were a support acts and then yeah and then dig and uh we actually flew up in in an old uh what were those things called Oh fucker! <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was some. I knew it was some sort of fucker. Yeah, <laughs> and um, they went berserk. Uh, well, look, all those country shows we used to do. Uh, most places we used to play, we'd never seen a live band before. You know, we we did a lot of before di- we broke up with Dig. We did a whole lot of Queensland tours that were disasters. But I mean, the audiences were fabulous. But I mean, some places you'd only get. Thirty people, you know, and then in the next town you get three hundred, and the next town you get. F- f- oh, it was
0: so people it, talk about you know religious mm. missionaries. You guys are like rock and roll missionaries. You go and taking this music to places that just had never. Yeah, you know, they may have heard it, obviously heard it on radio and stuff like that, but not like in the big cities. No, that no, was it
2: was, and if they'd seen it on television, well, they didn't even have television half of them. But and the only other other people I should mention though. That they may have seen in those days was, was Slim Dusty, you know, and they'd all turn up. In fact, there were some towns we'd go in and they would say, How come we didn't get any people? And they said, ah, oh, Slim Dusty was here last week <laughs> and everybody spent their money.
0: <laughs> well, he's, he's not, at least he's a recognized act now that you guys weren't getting dudded by some, you know, hillbilly that was just oh, rolling no. for each his-
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. God almighty God. Well, Slim was older than us, uh, really, you know. He'd been in the business longer than us,
0: and he was just always constantly touring, wasn't he? Just yeah, as you yeah. said, town to town to town, know. Yeah. And, and
2: you'd play the crappiest old halls, but there were all these people who'd come for miles, you know, that, because they, there was no entertainment in those days.
0: Yeah, people of the internet age have got no idea of what you guys went through.
2: No, and and those trips in cars, there was no air conditioning either. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, and and they, often no sealed roads as well. I
2: uh, know, I know. No protection from all the bulldust. Yeah, there was just as much bulldust going on with Ron in the back. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So by
0: 1962, the overall popularity, this a, a massive wave of rock and roll starts to wane. And it had to because... Yeah, you know, the fever pitch energy of the the kids, you know, it had to dip at some stage. It's yeah. life's like a roller coaster. And it gets start it starts to get tough for you guys to make a living, and it's decided that Dig will start to perform as a solo artist and the RJs will get start to get your own gigs. Yep. Was this a tough decision to make?
2: Well, it was. I mean, uh, uh Dig Dig rang me up and said, "Look, uh we've got a gig, we've got to go in and see this agency and everything, you know, and uh, he said, you know, come with me, you know, because I was the band leader by default. And um, and we went in and they said, well, look, we've got a gig for you, Dig, and a gig for the RJs, but they're they're separate, you know. Dig's got to go to Adelaide and we've got to go to, uh, where did we go, Kuma or somewhere? Uh, So uh, we thought, oh, God. All right, well, we'll take... No, we had to go to Canberra, that's right. And uh, so Dig we went off, and so suddenly we were without a lead singer, so we all had to, besides doing a bit of vocal backing, we had to actually get out and sing a few. And uh, eventually we got another guy in the band that used to be on Teen Time and stuff uh, called Sandy Davis. So he joined the band just to help, help out with a lot of the vocals that we'd have to do then. And the RJ sort of plodded, plodded along for uh, just throughout those years, the, the end of 63, when it all sort of that first wave all just died down and we'd done all these horrible Queensland tours and not made any money. So uh, the RJ sort of morphed into something else.
0: So what we'll do here we is is we'll, we'll finish this as part one yeah. So this yeah. is the end of Dig yeah, Richards and the of, RJs. Yeah. Yeah. That's
2: that's that's really how how it all does end. Yeah.
0: My my chat with you certainly hasn't ended, and what we'll do is we'll we'll roll on into a a couple of different episodes. So everyone will see on their iTunes account here. There's there's an episode on the RJs. There's an episode on the Mighty Guys, and there's also an episode on uh, Digby Richards, who you know obviously Dig changed his name to Digby Richards in his solo career. But we'll just we'll take a break here for a second, and then we'll just roll on in. But let's go out with a great Dig Richards and the RJs song, Love Struck.
1: On the boardwalk i met a little filly with wrinkles in her eyes she made me feel a little silly i'll make her realize not to roll her eyes at me i got a little message she whispered in my ear can you keep a little secret for no one else to hear you make me realize not to roll my eyes at you Every time I leave her, every time I'm with her I'm heading for another breakdown Well, every time I see her, every time I look I stand there shaking like I'm a struck But maybe in the morning I get a little warning Later in the evening I get a little squeezing I make her realize not to roll her eyes with me Her, I'm heading for another breakdown. Well, every time I see her, every time I look, I stand there shaking like I'm love struck. But maybe in the morning, I get a little warning. Maybe in the evening, I get a little squeezing. I make her realize she can roll her eyes with me. I make her realize she can her rise with me. I make realise she can roll her eyes with me.
0: Thanks for listening and thanks to Leon Isaacson and Doug Richards for your time and thanks to Dig Richards and the RJs for the music. If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe. And if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number 2, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Mycos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl!
1: Hey, my friends, I've got something to tell you.